morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. I'll be reading from the ESV. And it reads, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is God's word. So this morning, we um, are taking a break from our... Uh, kind of series going through the, the gospel of Mark. Uh, all across all of the Crosspoint congregations, uh, this is what we find ourselves doing, to have a day focused on uh, the missional efforts that we are all a part of. Yesterday, I had the joy and, and really the privilege uh, to be served by my friend and my former pastor of the Sending Church uh, here, uh, Pastor Steve McKenzie, as he uh, gave a message to all of the global mission partners that Crosspoint Coast is supporting and a part of. And, and, and he delivered this message that, that really is sort of the prologue to our time this morning. He, he gave us kind of a, a starting place. So this is uh, not really a shout out, but more of a, a, a prologue. He says, the heart of our mission or the heart of us doing mission is not because we exist to do missions. It's not because we're called to love people. It's not because we want a new life experience. All of these things fade. But the beauty and worthiness of Christ is forever. That is the heart of why we love people. That is the heart of why we do mission. That is the heart of why we want to have an experience of serving other people outside of our area across the globe is because not because we want these things, not because we have to sort of build a love in us for these people that we don't know. We are called to do that, but it's because Christ is worthy for them. The worthiness of Christ is at the heart of us doing mission. So this morning we praise God and celebrate the work that he is doing globally, yes. But I want to call to your attention to the field of opportunity that you and I have domestically. In our neighborhoods, our communities, our towns, our city. You and I have a charge to participate, not just passively in the mission of God, but also actively. Why do I say it that way? We are called to the extensive missional plan of God with our whole lives. If I can give you just a tiny illustration, your home. Your home is your first mission field. You are being missional in your home, both passively and actively. 
This is an example. For it, when you provide monetary contribution to your home and the flourishing of your home and your children and your, your roommates, your spouse, your uh, people in your household, you are active, you are passively involved in the mission. But when you are there, instructing and loving, guiding and laughing, when you are engaged in the behavioral discipline, the emotional instruction, the spiritual nourishing, you are actively participating in the mission. But why do you do that? You love your family, yes, but that cannot be the heart of it. The heart of it is because Christ is worthy enough for your children, because Christ is worthy enough for your spouse, because Christ is worthy enough for your roommates and, and the other peoples in your family, in your household, your parents. Christ is worthy enough for them. Your parents, your bosses, Christ is worthy enough to take their sin, to put it to death with his death and bring them to everlasting life. My child is the most forgetful of my three children, my middle child. You would look him in the eye and you would say, brush your teeth, put on your pajamas, tuck in, repeat it back to me. And he'll go, brush your teeth, put on pajamas and tuck in. You go, all right, good, go. And then in five minutes, you'll see him staring at the wall and you'll go, are you tucked in? No. Did you put on your pajamas? No. Did you brush your teeth? I forgot. Man, this is, this is, this is, this is true of us too. This is true of us too. That we have this calling to be missional minded, but in all the breath that God has for us in the dishes and the diapers, in the workplace and the, the extracurricular activities outside, we can sometimes forget just even the most basic thing that at the heart of us is the worthiness of Christ to reach people in our immediate vicinities of influence. We're called to be heralds. To proclaim the good news to all who would hear. So this morning's text reminds us of our call to be messengers for the king. Paul gives us four questions and five points. So let's pray and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Would you bow your head? God, we look to you again this morning asking you for your help. You gave us your word to have and to cherish. And so we ask for receptive hearts, wisdom and understanding it, and grace for each other as we walk it out. God, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. In the very popular children's book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry is a young boy who does not know who or what he truly is. He's growing up in a home that discourages anything extraordinary. However, throughout Harry's life, these strange and extraordinary things happened to him. On his 11th birthday, uh, Harry receives a letter in the mail addressed specifically to him. But 
Harry's uncle and aunt, who Harry lives with, try very desperately to keep Harry from reading the letter. They work very hard, very, very hard to not let him hear the news that brings, that is brought for him. The contents of the letter would liberate him. They would give him understanding. They would give him hope, and they don't want that. And so in their continued effort to not have him know the truth, they go take a holiday to a, like, island somewhere in this dingy old cabin so that Harry could stop receiving these letters. Well, that night there is a visitor at their door. A man by the name of Hagrid comes and delivers to Harry the letter of good news. Harry is somewhat confused and encouraged. He needs an explanation. Hagrid declares to the entire room the contents of the letter. He doesn't just say the truth of what Harry is, but who he is, and that there is a place for him in this world. By literary standards, Hagrid is the herald of the story. He brings the good news. He declares the work, the truth, of who Harry is and what he is to do, and then he helps him walk in that. Family, what makes a great children's story is that it is not only for children. Like Hagrid, you and I are called to be heralds in the story of God, to make known the goodness of Christ to all who need it, to announce the mercy, the grace, the love of God to a world who would otherwise choose, and not just choose, but fight for the ordinary, the finite, the passing, the fleeting pleasures of this world. I submit to you this question, have you forgotten your calling? The Apostle Paul, who wrote these verses in his letter to the Roman Christians of the first century church, he wrote these letter to address some concerns, some issues within the church, particularly the issue of who does salvation belong to? That's the issue within the church. Who does salvation belong to? Jewish Christians thought it was theirs and theirs only. Gentiles thought they were grafted in. So they're having this dispute. And Paul says, hey, God chooses. God is sovereign over salvation. And it is open to all. So the Jews don't determine who the message belonged to. The Gentiles don't determine who the message belonged to. God does. And he says the message of salvation is for all. Paul tells the church in verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to salvation. God is completely impartial to who receives his grace. Just as all men experience and participate in the sinfulness of this world, so the message of deliverance and salvation of that sin is open to them. Then Paul moves from settling this dispute about who salvation belongs to and declares emphatically, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is shifting the conversation to who are the citizens of the kingdom, to what they are called to do. There is great relevance for us in this text. You and I have been saved from the wrath of God 
And we, neither Jew nor Greek, that I know of, that would be awesome, have entered into his marvelous grace. Because Christ is worthy. Worthy to take our sin, defeated on the cross. And because God has decided who Christ's work has applied to. But that's not where Paul, nor we, begin this great explanation of salvation. Paul begins, as we must now, with the fall. He says, all. Who? All. All have rejected. All have rejected. And therefore are unable to call on God unless prompted by him. This is to say man is totally unable from the moment of birth to call on God for the redemption of their souls. Romans 1 verse 18. We're going to be running through Romans, so just leave your Bible open. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of this world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Could you sit just for a second with the weightiness of what we just read? This was our reality. You who believe started here, unable and without excuse. All have failed. All are participating in the damnation of their souls. They have seen God's visible attributes and experienced his invisible attributes. You have seen creation. You have breathed his air. So you are without excuse. Just sit with that. For a second. Can't you feel hopelessness creeping in? But though we are without excuse, we are never without hope. Though we are without excuse, we are never without hope. I wish one of you remembered how you were saved this morning. I wish one of you was excited about how God took you from without excuse to full citizen in his kingdom. Though our condemnation is sure, God has provided a way out. He didn't leave us here. He didn't leave us with what we deserve. You and I deserve hell's punishment for our sin from the smallest white lie to the most heinous of things. You and I have done enough to be damned. We have done enough to be canceled. But God does not damn his children nor cancel his love for them. Instead, he gave us a way out. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested 
apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's good news for us in this deliverance for us in this but we have to have it rightly salvation is God's gift so it's nothing we bring to ourselves we accepted only what God made available to us and how was that offered to us how did you and I who are saints and citizens in the kingdom of God get here our scripture this morning Gives us an understanding on how it came to be so. And this is why it's important for us to understand this. Because now you understand how your children, how your neighbors, how your colleagues, how any of the unreached peoples you have immediate access to will be saved themselves. There is a call, family. There is a call for you and I To be missional minded because Christ is worthy. Because Christ is worthy. He can bring the dead to life. And before us now are the steps to God's salvation so that we know how we came into the faith. But also know the part we must play in others to get in there. Let's start at verse 15 of chapter 10. And how are they to preach? Unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There are two key words we need to make clear here before we can fully understand and apply this verse. Preach and sent. A lot of times we are experienced with this set of verses that we read, that Ashley read this morning. Our experience with them is usually to the job of the preacher on the pulpit. It usually comes to understanding the pastor's role. And I think that's helpful in instructing a congregation to understand. However, in its original intention, that's not, it was not written to preachers who held an office of preaching or who had a particular skill in preaching. That's not who the audience was. So this text is not just written to me but to all of us. The Greek word for preach here literally means herald, to announce. By its use here and its Greek definition, we know that it's not limited to the pulpit. When Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 7 about the beautiful feet of God's messengers, he's making a comparison to the work of the messenger. Let's use the imagery that Paul chooses to use of feet. Paul is not saying that the feet of God's heralds are well manicured, tidy, taken care of. But instead, they are worn, scarred. They're leather-like. It's the use of imagery. He's not saying don't get pedicures and don't take care of your bodies. That's not what he's saying. He's using the imagery of feet to reflect the inward position of a believer's heart. Messengers' feet are worn. They are scarred. They are beat up. 
because of the mission of delivering news, took them through some rough places. That'll preach, wouldn't it? Their mission caused them to trek long distances, dangerous roads, obstacles, and difficulties. Paul is saying, beautiful are the worn feet of the messenger. Family, are you keeping a false sense of beauty around you that keeps your faith hidden and personal? Do you see the death of the people around you and not see that you have good news for them? Do you keep for yourself the good news that God has asked you to deliver to others? Have beauty on your mind. True beauty. The worn, scarred, leather-like feet of messengers. Bringers of the good news, John Piper says, are precious people. People of whom the world is not worthy of. Beautiful for their worn out bodies in the service of King Jesus. The second term is sent. Now that we know all of God's people have the good news, they are sent to give it out. Each one of us is sent into the world to proclaim the good news of salvation to others. In verses 14 and 15, Paul lays out five steps to the salvation process. But then in verse 16 and 17, he sort of simplifies it by repeating three of the five steps. He goes from sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling to believing, hearing, proclaiming. The proclaiming is defined in verse 17 as the word of Christ. So we have the content of what the proclamation is. So if we are to take the whole scope of Paul's explanation, we have five points of emphasis this, mo- this morning. Excuse me. Believers are sent to proclaim. They proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recipients hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. And then they call on Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's work this out backwards. Let's start on calling. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a difference between steps four and five. To believe in the Lord and call on the Lord are more different than similar. You cannot call if you don't truly believe. But if you believe, you will call. If you are going swimming and you begin to drown and you look up at the lifeguard and say, help me. It's because you believe that the lifeguard can save you. You cannot call if you are not in need of saving, nor if you believe that the lifeguard can have the ability to save you. You must believe before you can call. If I can dip into a future text we'll study, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, that's Jesus, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting outside by the road, by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Oh, I can't wait to get into that. That's wild. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus sees Bartimaeus' calling as a product of his faith. Bartimaeus believes that Jesus is the only hope and the, the source of hope for his condition. The only one who has the power to save him. <clears throat> the only one who can make his eyes new. And in his faith, he calls out to Jesus. Jesus has determined the cry of this man is not only the physical affliction, but that the physical affliction is also a spiritual one. This man wants Jesus for his eyes and the eyes of his heart. Some of you may be here this morning or watching the video or listening to the podcast and you think you have believed and yet you have not yet called out. I tell you, friend, call out to Jesus this morning. He's strong enough to save you from your sin and bring you from dead to light. Call out to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone continually calling to Jesus. Lord, I am weak. I need your strength. Lord, I am a sinner. I need your grace. God, I am impatient. Give me patience for your glory. God, I'm caught in a web of sin and temptation. Would you deliver me? The Christian is someone who continually, since the inception of his faith, calls out to Jesus for help. This is vastly different than calling out to Jesus to deliver you from a temporal need. This kind of call, this temporal need of calling Jesus, is like to spare you from the consequence of your sin, but not your sin itself. It's like in great trauma, just deliver me from it. I'm sick, God, would you heal me? It's not born out of affection for Christ, but of self. Jesus is nothing more than a remedy to you, a means to an end. Friend, I tell you, Jesus is more beautiful than that. Jesus is able to save your soul, not just save your broken heart. He's able, by his great love and humility, to give you himself. Don't reduce him to sparing your ego. Call out to Jesus For the eyes of your heart, like Bartimaeus. This leads us to our next step, believing. How will they call on him if they haven't believed? Calling on Jesus means you are calling to him as Lord. As Jesus says in an earlier verse, Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart... 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Until you believe in Jesus' ability to save you from your sin, you cannot call on him as Lord. And this is a particular kind of belief. Firstly, belief in Jesus means that your life has began surrendering to him. Belief means surrendered. These things happen all together. Your sin state, at the moment you believe, your sin state is no longer pronounced over you. The bondage of sin is no longer over you. At the moment you believe in your heart. Salvation has taken its place. Regeneration has began. Righteousness has already been transferred. You don't believe and then later on in your faith you surrender. No. When you believe, you begin to change. What's one of the first things that comes to your senses when you wake up? It's the taste in your mouth. When you awake... From the slumber of death, sin leaves a bad taste in your mouth. When you are awoken from the slumber of death, the taste in your mouth is no longer something you want to deal with anymore. You don't want to keep that there. Saving faith, believing in Jesus means submission to him and change will begin to take its course. Second, this belief has to be more than a general belief. James says, even the demons believe and shudder. And that belief does them no good. Family, we can't just believe. We have to rest in it. We have to have confidence in it. I remember once we left Jace as a baby. Jace is my oldest. We left him as a baby to stay with my aunt because Grayson was going to be born. And he knew my aunt. I mean, Jace was eight, eight, 18 months at the time. He knew my aunt, right? And so he stayed there overnight because you know, Grayson was born at like 3 in the morning, of course. <clears throat> and uh, he didn't sleep that whole night. Stayed awake until like 6-something where his like, little finite 18-month body finally gave out. But he just stayed awake. He just stayed awake. It's because he wasn't confident. He couldn't rest in the safety and trust and the care of someone who was not mom or dad. Believing in Jesus is just that. It's a confident, safe trust in his work over you as a child sleeps in the confidence and safety of their parents presence so we must find that same rest in the facts of Jesus's work on the cross lastly there is an emotional shift believing in Jesus means that your heart now delights in him you cherish him you treasure him this is essential to our faith. I was listening to a conference online, actually a couple months ago. It was an old conference. The conference happened a long time ago, but I was watching it a couple months ago, and R.C. Sproul gets up first, right? 
And he's using this um, illustration of a chair, right? They're talking about faith. He's using the illustration of a chair. R.C. says, faith is looking at the chair and believing that when you sit on it, it'll hold you up. But that's not enough. You got to sit on the chair. That's faith. Faith is believing that it'll do it and then laying yourself on it, right? John Piper gets up immediately after R.C. Sproul, and he says, I love Dr. R.C. I love him. I appreciate him. But that analogy is incomplete. He goes, because you can trust that the chair will hold you up, and you can sit on the chair, and it will hold you up and still hate the chair. That's not faith. Faith is you know that the chair will do what it's going to do. You throw yourself onto the chair because it's going to do what you know it's going to do, and you love the chair. You have to love the chair. Jesus is not only worthy enough to save you from your sin. This is the point. He's worthy enough to satisfy every deep longing of your soul. To say that Jesus is better than life and actually mean it. There's nothing here in this world, no person, no being, no construct, that can satisfy your soul like Jesus can. This takes us to another point. So step five, step four. But I'm going to group these last three together. Because they have a succession to them that cannot be parsed out without each other. I think we may be quite often tempted to silo these three categories, but in practical measures, they are joined at the hip. Hearing, proclaiming, and sending. Romans 10. And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Family, believers are sent to proclaim the gospel. They are sent to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all who believe. You cannot divorce these three elements. You cannot only have messengers. You cannot only have good news. You cannot only have hearers. You need messengers who preach the truth to hearers who then become the next wave of messengers. The three elements have always been grafted together harmoniously. We who have fallen short become citizens and heralds to proclaim the truth of God to those who have fallen short. But family, it takes us back to the beginning. You have to see Jesus is worthy to believe. You have to see Jesus is worthy to preach. And you have to see Jesus is worthy to truly The truth about the gospel, that Jesus lived a perfect life on your behalf, died the death you deserve to save you from sin and imparted in you the Holy Spirit to help carry you into his holiness. 
with affection filled longing to see him return changes you to the very core. You will not be the same. So much so that you will exist to make him known among the people around you. You'll leverage your career. You'll leverage your finances. You'll leverage your time, your talents, your gifts, your strength to make him known in all your life. Not because you're fueled by preaching. Not because you're fueled by obedience. But because you are convinced that Jesus is worthy enough to do all that he has done. That is what surrender looks like. This is what is to be, as Paul says, ambassadors for Christ. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. Starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. God sends his messengers and entrusts them with with his message, heralds to deliver the same message they themselves received as a message of reconciliation. See, family, you were an enemy of God, but through Christ, he reconciled you to be family with him. I wish, church, you would see that God did not need you and does not need you to be reconciled to him. You are in need of the reconciliation he offers Think on last week's text. Jesus calls these four fishermen to himself. He didn't say to himself, I see those young successful brothers over there and I think they need me. No, 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 no. He didn't need to be with them. They needed him. He said, you come follow me. You don't need organization. You don't need allegiances. You don't need your family. You don't need opportunity. You don't need success or money. No, you need me and I am calling you to me. Jesus is that worthy. If I could, he is completely human and fully divine. He is the creator of all things and the sustainer of it too. He is the man who went hungry in the desert and simultaneously caused food to rise from the ground. He went thirsty while fasting, but he flooded the earth in judgment. He is the one full of the spirit and loved by, by the father. He is the servant king and the judge of the people. He is the light of the world and the sun that warms the earth. He is the only one who is sinless. He is the only one who defeated death and put it to bed. When the heavens mourned and wept that nobody could break the seal of the scroll of God's redemptive plan, Jesus stepped in and said, I am here. 
I am worthy. He is both lion and lamb. Jesus is worthy. He doesn't need your acceptance, but he has come to accept you. He doesn't need your work, but he has come to do the work on your behalf. He makes the enemy friend and he makes the orphan family. Jesus is worthy for you and he's worthy for them. This happened to you. This is what happened to you. And now we live amongst other enemies of God. And we tell them about the reconciliation that they can have with him. You open your mouth, as Paul says, and implore them to be reconciled in Christ just as you have been. There is no Christian who is not sent. There is no Christian who is not entrusted to carry the message of reconciliation. You not have the impulse to do it maybe because of timidness, but you have conviction. Conviction to the message, the content of it. And that is better fuel than any earthly talent you may think you do not possess. Nothing is worse than an eloquent speaker who has no conviction in his voice. You've seen it before. Wonderful, gifted communicators who don't even believe themselves what they are communicating. Conviction over gifting. That is our call. God blesses his messengers to speak his gospel. Do not teach yourself a lie and say that because I can't speak well, I can't speak at all. Don't teach yourself a lie and say, I am not sent because I am not gifted to speak. Rare were the prophets that God used that were neat, tidied, well-looking, well-spoken people. God would rather use and has always used crooked sticks to make straight lines. Rather, what I urge you is to speak to God and say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Where you send me, I will go. And then look up at the mission field that God has put before you. And remember the worthiness of Christ and not the supposed inadequacy of your ability. Stand with me and worship the king who is worthy.